Hey, 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 Pop Culture Quorum Deo, back again. This is Jeff Wright, and we have another interview treat for you. We have none other than the Chocolate Knox. And if you happen to not know who that is, uh, he's a fascinating guy, and you're going to learn that in the upcoming interview here. Uh, we talked about everything on this one. We talked about his early days with Todd Friel and Richard, uh, moving into doing movies with Kirk Cameron, ending up in Moscow, Idaho, launching the Cross Politic podcast, and then the Fight, Laugh, Feast uh, network that, that came out of the, uh, the blessing the Lord put on Cross Politic, and a ton more. So I am delighted to have had the chance to talk to Chocolate Knox, and I am excited to put this in front of you. Now, before we get into that interview, I just want to mention a friend of mine who has passed away, who is at home with the Lord now. His name on social media was Zookeeper Kevin, Kevin Mollahan. He passed away a while back, and Kevin was one of the first guys who put Chocolate Knox's name in front of me. I miss that guy. appreciate him, and I just, just want to say thanks to Kevin for yet another one of the good things he brought to my life through our friendship. So with that being said, let's get into this interview with Chocolate Knox. Hey, Chocolate Knox, thank you for being on the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast, man. It is uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on. How are you today? Uh, it's very kind of you guys to think to have me on, so I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah, well, we're excited. Um so I just got done listening to the latest cross politic on the way in here. You guys are feeling <laughs> it over there, man. Thank you. Thank you. I don't think a lot of people are happy with our last podcast, but that's okay. Oh, you getting some pushback? Yeah, getting getting a little getting a few folks who uh disagree with us on a few things. That. I think we're in conversation when we have people have some pushback because I want to ask them how do they biblically disagree with us. So that's yeah. good. Yeah, I appreciate that about you guys. Y'all y'all are quick to the word and that's gonna be the final Final determiner. Um, I feel like I was late to the cross politic party. I had some friends who were listening to it telling me I should. And uh, I started tuning in about a year ago and I was like, yeah, I should have been listening sooner. (laughs) (laughs) If it's a cross politic party, there's no such thing as being late to that one because we go all night long. So you're never late, brother. Whenever you got in is when you're supposed to get in. So. All right. Well, I mean, I said, thank you for listening, by the way, man. I, I, I don't. I don't take it lightly that somebody takes it, you know, an hour or any time out of their schedule to turn on our show and listen. And uh, so I'm grateful. Thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate y'all. Y'all help. Um, the amount of research y'all are able to fit in in, uh, in advance of an episode really does kind of impress me. Um, but with that in mind, I just on the off chance that there's somebody listening here who, who doesn't know you. Uh, he, let me let me write. Let, let me give you everything I wrote down that you have your hands in, and you tell me all the vocational things I miss because I know you're a busy dude. I got I got you down as husband. I got you down as father. I got you down as producer, podcaster, entrepreneur, host of the Cross Politic podcast, and founder of the Fight Laugh Feast Network. What am I missing there? Yeah, no. Um, I think dang, I didn't, I didn't even think about. It. I was like, yeah, I started thinking about all the other branches that are there. That's pretty good. That'll work. So what do you do with all your extra free time? Uh, I deliver my wife's children. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's what I do in my extra free time. Well, she's due any time in June, mid mid June she'll be due. So I'll be delivering our next, our seventh child. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah. We, uh, we just found out that we are expecting our fifth. So we're, we're trailing behind just a little bit, but now you ain't baptized your babies yet. Have you? I will baptize my babies as soon as they are in the covenant. (laughs) They got your last name, though, don't they? They do have my last name. I'm hoping the Lord gives them his faith. 
<laughs> I don't think you have a problem with that. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that last uh, that last line I sent you in what I want to talk to you about, but it was how do I get you back over to credo baptism? So that's coming, okay? Oh, okay. Well, you know, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah, yeah, I figure. I figure. I really, how do you drive my kids off and remove the fact that uh, they're covenant bonded mm. already? That's harder. That's the harder problem mm. you're going to have. <laughs> they might have been. So I don't know what to tell you. They take communion every week. I don't know what to tell you. What are you going to do? You know, I actually I appreciate y'all. If I if if I ever became uh, Pado Baptist, I feel like Pado communion is the most consistent version of that. It you now again, I'm an outsider, but when I see yep. you give them the covenant sign of baptism, but you deny them the covenant meal, I just that does not compute in my little brain. I think my Baptist brothers see the argument a lot better than some of my Presbyterian brothers do. So. Yeah, I appreciate it about my Baptist brothers. You know, and honestly, for me, I think people think that it's all about infant baptism for me. It's not. That's not my issue with the, the conversation. My issue has always been if we say that we want to have fellowship with each other and baptism is an issue for us to separate over, well, then let's act like it. Um, if a president wants to join your Baptist church, um, if it's not an issue to separate over, don't put him under church discipline or excommunicate him from being a member if he's Presbyterian, right? And so I, that's really my argument is like, I, I don't, people can choose to be pedo or credo. I, I really don't mind that. I don't like that we split the church over it. When we split up church membership over something like that, that we shouldn't do that. So I take that, I take it you're CREC then, right? Right, right. Well, you know, it is not good days for us in the Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, I find my fingers wandering over to look at that CREC website every now and then, you know. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, I don't have to wonder what I need to do to get you to come over our way. You take Baptists just as you are, unlike you Baptists who take Presbyterian. Now we take you just as you are, brother. So come on over. Just as you are, I think that's like uh, that's a copyrighted property of Southern Baptists. We we have that saying like seventeen times every invitation. <laughs> Y'all still do that? I thought that was just a tent revival as I grew up charismatic world. It's like, just come as you are. No, man, well, that's, that's still cutting edge for us, man. Um, <laughs> well, hey, you have the best nickname in all of Reformed and Evangelical Christianity. So uh, if you could, again, just in case any of our listeners are getting to know you for the first time through this, could you explain the Chocolate Knock nickname? Uh, nickname? Yeah. yeah, it was... Um, I was at, at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Greenville and um, going through convocation and was there for some of the classes. And one of the guys who was there was really picking on me about my beard. He said it was super long and it's so long that we need to give it its own name. And um, those brothers knew that I like John Knox. I have a huge passion for seeing restored and um excuse me, reformed uh, theology entering into the black culture and community in this church and its worship, a huge passion for that. And so I loved what John Knox did with Scotland, how he had that tagline, give me Scotland or I die. And so that's all things that I've attached to and, and watching his model of how he was caring for his brother, brothers in Scotland and to see them reform. Um, so when that conversation was happening, what do we call your beard? I just like, somebody said, you know, let's call it, um, call it uh, John Knox. Like, how about chocolate knocks? And that resonated, and uh, so it stuck. And so my beard actually got the name, not me. That's the, that's the, <laughs> the beard's name is Chocolate Knocks. I just wear it. I wear the chocolate knocks. You know. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, so it is how- an epic beard, and it does deserve a claim. So I get that. That makes sense to me. <laughs> So when I cut it off, everybody wanted to remove the name. They were like, you're not chocolate knocks anymore. So, man, 
when a beard takes on its own life. So, all right. So I heard Greenville there. Um, Again, I got to meet you, your work rather, about a year ago through the podcast. So if you're willing, could you kind of sketch out your early life for us and just tell us how did the Lord's grace find you? Yeah. So um, grew up in a home with Christian parents, um, charismatic, speaking in tongues, Holy Ghost filled, holiness. Uh, We weren't the kind to play with snakes, but definitely charismatic. (laughs) And um, they were missionaries traveling to and fro. I don't remember settling down anywhere until I was about nine years old in a place. Um, And even then was like for two years. And then we're out again to Minneapolis and Minneapolis is the longest time. Probably as a teenager, we settled down anywhere. And so um, my parents were missionaries traveling a lot. And so I I had a love for the Lord at a very young age, so much so that um, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to be like my mom. I wanted to minister like they ministered. So I fell in love with the God of my parents from seeing their passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ at a very young age. And so I've been in a tent revival and a sermon being preached at five, four or five or something like that. And the guy preached a sermon, uh, don't want to die like a fool. And I remember that sermon clearly. I remember finding my face in the sawdust. If you know anything about tent revivals, they up by the altar, they had the sawdust, you know. And I remember finding my face buried in that sawdust and not getting up until my parents pulled me up from being on my face. And um, and so that was my introduction to Christianity. It was basically born and raised in it. And then having that moment, I can remember, like, I remember that moment, you know, I always loved the Lord, but I remember that moment and remember that, that I couldn't get away with hardly anything <laughs> either, like my friends. And then, um, I found reformed theology in my mid teenage year, early teenage years through apologetics, apologetics teaching. So under a woman pastor, under woman ministry, probably my whole life, um, that was normal inside the charismatic movement. A lot of women ministers and, uh, listening to a Talk the Walk show by Todd Friel, um, hearing him constantly go over theological things and treaties and working through them and how he thought, I was like, how do you even think like this biblically where you can apply God's word to every aspect of life and nothing was off and apologetics got into that because of it. And so karm.org was a huge um, blessing. And, you know, Matt Slick doesn't even, I don't even know if he knows, but Matt Slick was a huge blessing in bringing me from charismatic to reform and just his basic principles, as well as from um, uh, woman pastors and preachers and elders to men led um, elders in church. And so I remember one sermon Todd said, Hey, if you're in a woman, if you're under the woman's ministry at a church, you are in error. You need to run. And it shook me to my core. The next Sunday I was at a church. I was actually at Todd's church um, uh, and became a member there and got close with Todd and, um, started working for wretched at that, at that point. So, okay. So we have the master, I guess. Yeah. So then the move from this church you were attending under uh, a woman preacher to Todd, you, how, how, how big a geographical move was that for you? Like, was that, I just drive somewhere else in town or were you like packing up and moving somewhere? Yeah, that was a, that was a 20 minute drive to the other side of town. Just crazy. I was, so this is Minneapolis. So I'm in Minneapolis. I grew up right behind John Piper's church. So, when we, when we first got to Minneapolis, we were behind this church for a, for a couple of years. And in that area was around that area that was, and I had no idea who John Piper was. Matter of fact, I didn't find out about John Piper until I went to the um, reformed church out in uh, uh, Egan Hills. So really? <laughs> I didn't, I was like, John Piper's local. He's in town. Oh my goodness. How come I don't know this? So I was kind of disappointed that I didn't know that John Piper was that close to me. You know? That's wild, man. That's wild. All right, so the Lord puts you though instead of John Piper's orbit, He puts you in Todd Friel's, and 
that's a praise the Lord, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I came on. So way the master was doing their thing, you and they were the first people I think that brought open air preaching back to the forefront. Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron, open air preaching and learning how to use God's law as the standard to witness, you know, and using that as a, a, a form of uh, gospel engagement versus. Hey, just come to church with me or, you know, <laughs> or how do you witness to somebody? How, how do you shut? Th- and it was effective watching these guys go out on the street and use God's law to witness. Like you saw people's mouths being stopped. They couldn't give an account and they had to, you know, they was like, well, I don't know what to do with this. And so I got drawn into that ministry um, and I wanted to see them be successful. So that's why I submitted my application to way of the master radio at the time with those guys. And since we were going to the same church and they knew that I had audio experience, it was uh, kind of an easy decision for them. And so I worked with them for um, about six years or so, six, seven years, something like that, and ended up in Georgia at Charles Stanley's ministry. He had bought FamilyNet and FamilyNet Television. And so he asked that uh, where the master radio wanted to be, a, if Todd wanted to do a TV show called Wretched. And so two years after working for those guys, we moved down to two years after working for Todd and Joel Anderson, we moved down to Georgia. And that starts me down the filmmaking road. So, okay. okay. So then with the filmmaking stuff, are you self-taught? Was there, or was there some kind of formal process you went through there? No, I have to get a lot of credit. There's one kid that I, I, when I was working at Wretched, um, two things at InTouch, they have a full editing bay. And so you at lunch, I would just go down there and sneak and see what those guys were doing and how they were doing it and get in with the editor and just hang around with him and watch him edit. And then I would take his skills and then go practice them upstairs and then come back and learn a little bit more to take it. Practice. So it was self-taught and watching a lot of faithful guys, kind guys, let me sit in on their editing sessions and teach me how they were doing things. So it wasn't formal in any way. And then I ran across a filmmaker called Darren Doan. His name was Darren Doan. Um, he was doing, he's a music, um, um, music, video music, uh, monster. Just, he does, he's done so much punk rock. If you pick up a punk rock album that was platinum, he probably did their music video. Uh, he's just that He's doing Jason Mraz's videos now. He did Jason Mraz, I'm Yours, Zach Brown Band, Shine Down, um, Blink 182. I mean, you name it, he's got a library. And so he was a Christian. So I, I bumped into his work. And what's really encouraging when you're trying to learn how to do something is that guys are already have a foundation in what they do. Uh, and they do a good job at it and they make good money at it. And then you see that and they're like, this is really easy to do. And you're like, oh, and they just bring you in. So while I was working at Wretched, um, I learned about him and he was working with Kirk Cameron at the time. And so we were working with Kirk Cameron. He's working with Kirk Cameron. And so <laughs> I kind of just said, hmm, let me investigate this guy a little more. Oh, well, I mean, you can just see the hand of the Lord there, right? I mean, yeah. I'm just hearing all this good stuff the Lord gave you, like my mom and dad to praise the Lord over, uh, get you yeah. hooked up with Frio, get you with David Doan. Um, hey, before we move, I mean, I, again, I got a lot I want to pick your brain about. Before we move too quick, obviously, you're not in the same place theologically your parents are or were when you were growing up. I, you know, I don't want to hop back too far chronologically, but what's it like on that front? I mean, are y'all in fellowship? Yeah, that's interesting. So here's a little piece of, that's a good question because the church that we were at that we left was my wife's grandmother's church. So it's family. <laughs> that's not just like, oh, okay, we're going to go to another church. It's like, so what does Thanksgiving look like now? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, especially since the reason for leaving, the main reason, at least that I left, my wife left it for a different reason. Um, but for the main reason that I left was that we had a woman pastor. Uh, so it kind of makes Thanksgiving real different when it's like you love grandma, but you don't think she need to be pastor. And so how do you do this? You know, um, we 
my mom and I, my mom has been a huge, huge Bible person. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And she was our Sunday school teacher. So my rhetoric with my mom has just been her rhetoric to me. Mm. And it's been amazing watching her have to swallow her own words and say, okay. And I got to say, I've, I've appreciated to be on this side, watching a mature Christian, having to hear arguments that they disagree with and to come from their son, who is somebody who they've are authority over and yet try and work through those things and, and, and believe God's word, even though none of the situation is optimal for them to be able to receive what I'm saying. Right. (laughs) But but my mom has been um, probably the most receptive and has, I think she's, she loves it. Like she's a big fan of cross politics. She loves cross politics, loves what we do. And I think she's trying to figure out this world, this reform world still, and how does it operate? But because she has so much biblical knowledge, it, some of it for me is just being connecting this dot to that dot, mm. this dot to that dot. And when they see those connections, they're like, okay, I'm in, um, you know, on the other side of the family, we just don't talk about it. Mm. You know, there hasn't been a whole lot of conversation about it. We just don't talk about it. But, um, I think what I try to do is it's easy to have a debate with somebody about a topic. It's another thing to, to have a conversation with how much, how much joy there is in this, how much, how much better it is. Like, isn't this better? Doesn't this taste? So I treat it like it's a, a food choice in one sense. It's like, you got to taste this. Like, this is so good. Instead of like, what's wrong with you for thinking that, you know, I want to, I, I want to have it so that this is appetizing to the listener. And so I, especially in that situation, it leaves it so that we can walk away and still hug each other. And I feel like we're not going to get an invite to next Christmas. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. I'm just glad to hear that those channels are open and whatnot. I mean, I went into Calvinism kicking and screaming craziest person in the world. And if it weren't for kind people kind of doing for, for me, what you are talking about doing there, I think I'd still be believing crazy stuff, you know? And yeah. so like, I, I, I end up sympathetic to the person you're talking about um, who hadn't maybe put all the dots together, but they have this, they have a prior commitment to just whatever the Bible says I'm in on. They just need somebody to kind of help walk them through it. You know what I mean? And uh, I don't see that as a problem so much as it is like all of us got to learn, you know, all of us have to understand the word better. So thank goodness we get a chance to have the Bible open in front of us and people can walk us through it and help us, you know? Yeah. I, I, um, it, I think we, especially as conservatives, um, theologically or whatever, we forget so easily how far we've come as if we've always been here on this side. And I've ha- I do, sometimes my wife has to remind me like, babe, you didn't always think like this. And matter of fact, if you go back to two years from where you are now, you probably would have had a different conversation with that dude, you know? Mm-hmm. And that gives me a lot. And I, the other side of it is that I want to know, do I want to win the argument with my brother or do I want to win my brother? That's well said. And, and, and that's what I want. I want to win my brother. I mean, I, I guess we would both know there's the time to be like pugnacious. You got to put the gloves on sometimes. But when you can be gentle and kind and compassionate and charitable and like you were saying, hey, come eat this good meal with me rather than, hey, weirdo, why are you wrong the way you are? That's a yeah. good thing to keep in mind. You know, that's part of standing for the truth, too. Yeah, those those. Yeah, absolutely. Um I, I try and, you know, I really do think about what, how gracious God has been towards me. The almighty, our powerful God has condescended to me and he's not taking, um, 
you know, my ignorance or ability to understand isn't necessarily a threat against him. He's being kind. And, and, and but there are some people, there are some where God smashes, you know, <laughs> and even that he was kind in the process before he ever got to them. But there comes to a point where some people and we need to be able to do both. I just don't think that we're able to identify who needs to be smashed and then who needs to actually have. Hey, dude, come over, and hang out with me and, and let's let's have some beers and talk about this. I mean, Baptist, y'all have some tea or something, whatever y'all have. I don't know what y'all have anymore. Man, Coffee. It, it is terrible being in this spot because I just have nothing I can come back with. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I like to be pugnacious, but I'm disarmed on this front. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, let me tell you something about the podcast here. I, I do not see myself as a creative person. But I am mm. deeply thankful for creative people and have been incredibly profited by creative people. And so I'm kind of fascinated. I feel like um, I feel like, uh, of course, I, you know, I'm gifted with sight, but like I feel sometimes like I'm a blind guy trying to talk to people about what it's like to see. And mm. so, you know, I've, I've read the C.S. Lewis books, the Tolkien stuff, Andrew Peterson talking about creating story. But something I, I know virtually nothing about is the stuff that you have access to and the skills you have on your side where, sure, there's a great story, but we've got to be able to present it effectively. We're going to uh, we're going to put it in a form that people can access and, and sort of the form highlights the message and whatnot. And so yeah. if I could, I know I'm kind of jumping from family history and things like that back into the professional life, but you're a storyteller in in a way that I understand very little about. And so. When you're working with Wretched, you're working, you know, with founders on their Synodoc, uh, you're yeah. working with the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. As a creative person coming to the story kind of after the story's sketched out, what does it look like for you? What are your aims when you sit down to help get a piece of media out to an audience? I know that's really broad, and I'll try to narrow it in if, if that would be yeah. helpful. But I'm trying to just get into your head a little bit as a, as a creator. Um, I, well, this is hard because creators also have to be good businessmen. Mm. And part, part of being a good businessman is making sure that you are supplying a value there to the people who hired you for the job. And so my first question that I'm always asking when I come to a situation uh, is first, Lord, please help. Uh, <laughs> and, and second, what does my client want to communicate? Um those two things, and I'm not joking, I'm, I just actually, we're getting ready to start the second phase of um, founders doing their Wield the Sword. And so I'm really excited about what they're doing. So um, we're getting ready to start the filming for that. And my cry to the God was help. So I, I, I'm not joking when I say that. But you, I spent a lot of time, and founders is probably a good example because it's a world that I don't spend a whole lot of time in. I'm familiar with it, but the Southern Baptist world and the convention I spent a lot of time trying to understand the Southern Baptist mindset and world. And then I wanted to understand what founders was in that world. And then what did they want to communicate to that world? So those are, those are the places I really wanted. And since they hired me to make a film for them, I wasn't trying to, and I, and the guy, Darren Doan, the guy who was my mentor in this, um, he, when he did music videos back in the day, he would never put his name on the music video because he said, it's not about me. It is about the band. And I want the band to look as best as they can. I want the band to trust me to give them that look. And, and so I'm always asking, what does my client want to communicate? And then how can I communicate that effectively? So if I can understand what they want to communicate, if I can understand their, their, the importance of this to them, and I can actually eat that and it becomes a part of my diet as well. Um, then when I act on my creative tools, they're in alignment with what founders wants to do. 
Um, and so that took some time, you know, uh, to be very frank, I think when I dropped the trailer the first time for founder, that trailer was, um, in some ways I was pushing to get the voice for the, for the doc, for the film, but I knew that wasn't completely founder's voice, but I knew that in this context, if, if founders didn't do something, there is no way for them to have a voice, you know, there's so some of it was me understanding that, man, how do I press the edge a little bit? Cause it's needed. And then when it comes time to tell the whole story, let the whole thing breathe as their full voice, you know? And so that was, that's part of it. But so is that answer some of your question? Maybe that's. It does. And it really sets up because I want to I want to talk to you specifically about that synod doc um, as a Southern Baptist. I'm thankful for mm. your work there. I'm thankful for founders. Tom Askell has been kind of a mentor from a distance for me for a decade or so. You know, he was one of the first guys who name whose name I knew who had a platform who if I emailed him and asked him a question, I got back a thoughtful, careful answer. And he didn't you know, there was no like big timing. So as a young pastor, man, I would, I'm just thankful for that guy. And I continue to be thankful for everything that he's doing and, and your work there. Before we go there, though, can I, if I could come back to sort of the intention of the person you're working with. Yeah. It seems to me like when Christians get into creating media, they want to do something pedagogical. They're going to instruct. So something like Way of the Master or Wretched. Yeah. Um, they're going to, they're going to want to do something that is, more narrative, like a uh, like the fireproof movie, right? Where they where instead of being as pedagogical in outright teaching, they're going to just say, "Hey, we're going to tell you a story. It's going to have a conversion scene. Somebody's going to kneel and pray the sinner's prayer." And then there's that third version that um, I think Indy Wilson in his movie The River Thief really captures, where you tell a very Christ saturated story, but there's no explicit conversion scene, right? Mm-hmm. How do you think through? Is, is is there a difference in the way you would arrange material for those three? So I'm assuming the synodoc work would be like what you would do for Richard. But if you're over here working on the River Thief, I'm assuming the work's going to look different, but I don't know that for sure. So would it? Um, and if if so, could you elaborate? If not, just be like, nah, man, it's about the same and we'll go on. Well, no, it's not. Um, there's audiences. Audiences are different. Christians need things to fit in tight little boxes for them to have it, to eat it, because mainly a lot of them are still on milk. Mm. So um, I think what Indy Wilson does reaches people who are still on milk, but it's meaty because he's able to say God's world is designed in such a way that you can't escape his imprint, his, um, his, his thumbprint on it, you know, his handprint and his making of, you can't escape. So if you tell a story, matter of fact, the world's designed in such a way that Avengers or any superhero or any movie can't, can't escape the idea of Christology, right? (laughs) It's, it's, it's inescapable. And so what, what, what we do is, so there's, there's, so let me just break that. So I think that there's milk, there's meat and somewhere in the middle, those two. And I was hoping with the Cine doc not to be I wanted the cine, usually for documentaries, and the reason I called it cine doc because I wanted it to be more cinema, less documentary. Um, which so we still had some interviews and things like that, but I wanted way way more of a narrative based um, content that of things that were going on that was happening that wasn't narrated necessarily by individual. So when you watch a movie, there is a narrative that's going through that movie that's been written into it that you are not necessarily privy to on the face of it. Right. So you have that that narrative that, OK, um, Breaking Bad, for instance, you have a guy who is a good guy. He gets sick. He needs wants to leave money for his family. He turns bad. But bad is bad. And so this is going to go down the drain. Now, they're not telling you all that when they so don't do bad things. Right. That's not what they're telling you. But they write in such a way 
that they bring you on this journey to prove their, this point, this premise. And so <clears throat> with the Cine doc, what I want to do is follow a narrative there and not let you just be completely flat and think your own thing, but use documentary style to fulfill that narrative without having a, a narrator over the top of it. So when you watch it, it's like, okay, you really can't make some of your own conclusions here without being told what to think. But if you're a Christian and you hold to a certain biblical theology, then let me flesh this out for you. Um, and that's what I was trying to do with the Cine. So that's what the whole goal of the Cine doc. So I was trying to push the Cine doc or the documentary uh, into more of the cinema style kind of setup. And I wanted to use, you know, I, in a movie, you cast all your actors. With the Cine doc, I wanted to have actors, but I didn't want to cast them. <laughs> right? And so what God did in his kindness gave us a story basically with all those pieces of, that a good story needs to have. And we were able to put that together in some form that was a more cinema-like versus just documentary-like. So that was my goal there. So <clears throat> I think that um, Christians um, think pretty narrow about what Christian is and what it isn't. And that's why we have such that, that things drawn out in that line. So a lot of people would see something, if a Christian made the Avengers film, they would say, well, that's not a, that's not a Christian cinema. And I want to say, why not? You know? All right. So... I know this is off script, so feel free to tell me like I hadn't thought about this. I so think I resonate with you because I feel like the term Christian as a marketing term really puts shackles on Christian artists and storytellers and whatnot. Like it's got to be, like I said, there's got to be an explicit scene in the movie where the guy praises sinner's prayer. Right. right. But I also have seen, I've lived long enough now to see some artists more in the music realm kind of use Christian as a marketing term to, to make some bread until they feel like they can kind of jump past it. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to do that Christian thing anymore. And it seems like kind of use and then leave behind. Right. And so mm. is there a balance to strike there where you say, no, I'm, I'm going to be upfront about my faith. I'm even going to talk to, you know, people who share my faith, but I really do want to be an artist with bigger, uh, bigger horizons. Is that possible or, or are, is the modern market too constrained where you've kind of got to pick a lane and be in it, in your opinion? Like, can, can you be Lecrae uh, and, and just feel like you have to be content saying, I'm making music about the Christian faith to Christians, or I'm going to be, um, I'm going to push out of that without A, giving up your faith or B, um, limiting yourself as an artist? Like, is that possible? Well, I'll say it like this. I don't think... Mel Gibson limited himself with Passion of the Christ from a filmmaking standpoint or from a box office sales standpoint. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. Everybody was like, we're making Christian movies now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so I don't think that, I think part of the problem is that some of your art just isn't good enough to rise to a level that's worth paying that much for or getting that being that good. So I don't think that, I don't think Christians can limit themselves when they talk about being Christian, but I think Christian sometimes uh, runs parallel with, that's good enough. Mm. And so we're seeing people making Christian things for, uh, um, for a Christian audience that since there's nobody in the market, they're like, we don't need to do any better for. So that bothers me. So, but I, I don't, I think Christians, if you want to make only Christian movies, then my goodness, go make just only Christian movies for Christian people. I love that. I love it. But then let the standard of what your what your movie is be so high that it's like everybody needs to be making Christian movies. Everybody should be making them. And, Mel, you know, again, I think that we have more of an option to do things like what Mel Gibson did with Passion of the Christ and then go and say, I'm going to make an action flick. And people be like, oh, that's great. Look at this. You know, 
the you know the thing is that Christians still need to have those categories that make them Christian. You know, just because you go and do an action flick doesn't mean that you need to have all the swearing and maybe you don't and and the sex scenes and you don't need all that to sell it. Um, do an action flick. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's a bunch of action flicks in the Bible, and you can tell semi-parallel stories with those that would be, to me, better than some of the action movies that we have now. And they don't have to be ancient people in ancient clothes. Just tell the story in a new narrative, you know? So, and everybody's trying to find something new to imagine, you know, for uh, the audiences out there now, when really we can just dig up some of the old stuff we have and retell those stories and we'd be fine. But I think, I think our biggest problem, so, you know, Lecrae, when we talk about Lecrae, I think Lecrae came to a realization that the world was bigger than what he thought it was. And he made a mistake in his, this is, and this is bigger than, so I got to take this tangent for a second. Uh, We live in a world where Christians and anybody now, there used to be a time where people would develop their skills, get good at something, and then reveal that to the world of how good they were. There was a time of production. They they had A&Rs in music industry that would develop talent. Um, Adam, Adam, not Adam Levine, the guy who did stuff with uh, Dr. Dre, the, the two, uh, on the, I can't remember his name, but anyway, he worked with Dr. Dre. He would take artists and put them aside for three years, even though they were talented and could do, so that they can be sharp enough and understand the business enough so when they got into it, they could run. And the character and artist development. All that is gone now. In some ways good that we have people who have studios in their home, in some ways bad because we have nobody who's really developed these people for the public eye. And that's what labels would do. But Lecrae and our whole generation now develop in front of us. So while they're having a theological, so imagine while I'm in my charismatic church, I'm preaching, I'm going off, I've got a woman that's a pastor of the church and I'm submitting to an authority while I'm still ministering. And then I have that conversion experience publicly in front of everybody with my YouTube channel. And I said, I don't think this is supposed to be going down this way. Mm-hmm. All the mistakes that I made of how I might've spoke on the t- subject, when I spoke on the subject, the moves I made to leave the church, all those things, whatever they were, were going to be public display for everybody to judge. Instead of having a moment where it's like, hold on, I need to work through this theologically and figure out how I do this and understand all these things properly and then see how that applies to my company. I think Lecrae turned the curb so fast and he did it publicly. None of those things had a time to mature. And so because they didn't, before he's finished with his thought, a lot of things, a lot of people attack, right? (laughs) So now he's like, I probably was going this way, but wow, that's a little nuts. Uh, and then people over here were like, well, if Craig's coming over this way, let's take him. Uh, you know, for whatever it's worth, we kind of did the same thing with Martin Luther King. Man, put Martin Luther King in a conservative seminary and let his theology develop. Oh, he couldn't get there. That's right. You know what I mean? So I think sometimes Christians, like like Lecrae, for instance, especially have a chance, they, they need that time to mature before they get out there. Or if they're in the middle of a situation, they need the time to think about it before they make that turn. I don't think he... He wasn't there. He was maturing in his face, still maturing on his theology. And a lot of things that should have been settled weren't settled. And I think that upset people. Um, And I think he probably would have turned a little differently uh, if he was if we understood that we're not settled in our some of our public figures are not settled as we would like them to be. Pastors are usually settled. You don't see very many people do what R.C. Sproul did go from young earth to old earth or older to younger, sorry, right? You don't, you don't yep. that's not typical, very not typical, especially once you're out there and got a following. So I have a little more compassion for some of the younger guys who are trying to expand their theology and don't understand all the ins and outs of it and then make messes in the process of doing it. And I think that's what happened with, I think that's what happened with Lecrae. As far as Christian filmmakers, um, I think our, 
or Christians in the art period in this business usually don't give our best to the art, which is why we have a lot of problems in the Christian video world. You know? So would it be fair for, for me to summarize your position by saying the, the artist needs to figure out what they want to say and say it as well as they possibly can? And then let whatever audience, you know, finds it and responds to it, respond as they want. Like that the the aim is telling your message and doing as well as you can and then let the audience worry about itself. Is that fair? No, not necessarily. I want to be mindful of the audience, too, because the pitfalls that I could have had if I come into the Southern Baptist world and don't understand that they have 11th commandment, that can be a problem. Right. Yeah. And so you need to know your audience because you can your rhetoric is only your rhetoric and persuasion is only going to be as good as you understand your audience to know what will move them, what is going to communicate to them well. So I guess communi- if by communicating, you mean understand, I would wrap knowing your audience into that because you can't communicate to the way that I talk to a police officer is going to be a lot different than I talk to a drug dealer. Right. My audience is different. I might communicate the same things, but one might understand them better if I communicate in the dialect that we talk, you know. So I I think it's important to know your audience and know how um, this is why I think some of the best moves we can make as Christians is not make another. um, And I'm I'm fine with not 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 make another fireproof, not make another um, amazing football movie about Jesus coming in and saving the team. Those are good. And we need those. What we need to do is make a movie that make movies like uh, what Nate did with River Thief. That's what we need. We need more of those kind of movies um, so that when people are realizing, I, I don't even know why that resonated with me so well, you know, because that's how the way that God made the world. These get what they deserve. right? Um, uh, you know, justice runs this particular way. You know, um, these are real people and real stories that we are attached to. I, I think that's something that Tyler Perry does well is also is he makes movies I think a lot of people watch a Tyler Perry movie and they're like, what in the world did I just see? Tyler Perry is speaking to a particular group of people with a particular narrative who understand their jokes, right? It's just like turning on like the Mexican channel. (laughs) And so um, talking to some of the people who are in larger Christian platforms who are trying to make Christian films, I realize that they don't understand Christianity either. Mm. What I mean by that is they don't understand how fragmented we are. Mm. What they feel like they can do is go get T.D. Jakes, John MacArthur, you know, <laughs> Jay Ligon Duncan, um, Joel Osteen, and all, the, and put and put them in a movie and think they're going to have a great film. <laughs> and they don't understand, like, man, don't do that. <laughs> You're gonna, we're pretty sect off. We have we're pretty sect off in Christianity, except for when it comes to secularism. And I don't, I'm saying that this, like when it comes to you will have all three of the all those people that I named that will separate when it comes to uh, watching a Christian film like that. They will all sit down and watch Avengers together. They'll all sit down. And, you know, they'll be like, man, that was really good. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was good. Um, so I think I'd be thinking about how can I get Christians who I know are in different sects and groups to engage in good Christian content and not feel like that. um they need to go to war, you know, and, and at the same time, be feeding them a certain sort of idea about God's world that I know that's true. So sort of a doctrine of co-belligerence on the points y'all agree on that can fight against um, sure. the push of secularism, but then also take our differences seriously and say they're these things are worth considering, too, within sort of within the uh, within the coalition. We're going to handle them. But where we can, we'll lock arms to oppose abortion. I mean, that's an easy one, right? That like. I lock arms with about anybody who wants to keep babies alive. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's about, I think that's about fair. And even now, 
you know, even now that's starting to be sect off a little bit, you know, <laughs> you have groups that's like, yeah, well, what do you, well, are you a pro-life person, but you still want the regular pro-life regime in there? You know, like, yeah, how can we find, again, this goes back to the conversation about baptism. I just want to be a part of the church. Mm. Can we have this conversation together? Can we have this fight together? And I find a lot of things outside of Christendom that seems to bring a um, uh, more uh, ecumenism than things that I think Christianity should. And I've learned, that's, that's why I love the CRC. You got all, you know, you can, there's a lot of different groups that can be together and still be in a denomination together and, and still work together and still be brothers together, even though they have disagreements. And figuring out how to do that is a lot harder than figuring out how to separate. Um, that's, and well so, said. that's well said. I, I think, but that's the fight that I want to have. And I think that a lot of our, our, our content as Christians can show the value of that. And we might be able to move some of the, the, the Overton window in that conversation. Well, so I, I guess that that makes me mentally shift specifically to the founder's synagogue. And I, I'm just going to put my cards on the table since uh, this is the first time we've really sat a talk. I was in Birmingham. I mm. was My hair was on fire when Resolution 9 was being presented on the stage. I was on Twitter arguing with Neil Shinby that like, this is legitimizing critical race theory as a, as an intellectual tool. And that goes way too far. This is unhelpful. Mm-hmm. I see Tom stand up to a microphone and I'm like, I don't know if you ever feel this way, but you kind of like get the the relief of being like, Oh, that other guy I really respect is on the same side. I am. I feel much better about how I'm feeling right now. You know? Yeah. So I am, I mean, I'm in, I was in from early on that resolution nine critical race theory is a threat. Right. Mm-hmm. I see that trailer drop for uh, for by what standard? I think it's the greatest thing. Here comes this rolling controversy about who, you know, what voiceover was attached to what bit of footage. As somebody who was charitably inclined to that thing, I never once thought, oh, this is somehow setting somebody up to look like the devil or whatever. But that showed yeah. up, right? And a minute ago, you're talking about, hey, we got to know our audience. You talked about stumbling in onto the 11th Amendment. What was that experience like for you when that trailer comes out? And what would you say... I mean, well, just what's your response? I don't want to say, what did you learn? Because it may be that, like, I just remembered that Twitter's crazy. But what was that experience like on your side? I'm uh, so grateful for it. Um, <laughs> I really was. Because if you're going to do something like that, you need to know what you're doing. You don't willy-nilly do something like that. So it wasn't an accident. It was very intentional. And the right people made a big deal about something to get some attention on something they would have never cared about before. Hmm. <laughs> so the objective was obtained, right? Gotcha. Okay. Um, and so those, I, you know, I was talking to my other friends. I was like, I knew that was going to be, I knew that was going to be a big deal. Um, but I was thinking that I had, the only thing that I probably misjudged was that I thought I had more biblically minded people than I did. And so that was probably, I thought, I thought people were listening to some of the same things I was listening to and, and had more biblical knowledge than I gave them way too much credit. <laughs> you mean you had more biblically minded people. You thought you had more biblically minded people in the Southern Baptist convention or yeah, like oh, an evangelicalism. Yeah. No, I both, both really, but especially in the Southern Baptist convention, I thought that um, for, you know, there was just some things I really expected them to see and know and to say, well, that's problematic. Um, and so I, and I, so I expected hoopla to be there. That's, if you can't, you know, part of um, Christians need to get better at knowing how to start prop, biblical propaganda. You know what I mean? They, we got to get better at, at that. Some people who I, me and Marcus Pittman, we, I don't know if you know who that is. Marcus Pittman from Apology Radio, me and him get into conversations about this all the time. He's quick to do propaganda. I'm not nearly as quick to do it, uh, but he, he gets 
what he does, how he uses it, how he springboards from what he knows his the audience is going to trip over, and then to use that to launch into biblical theology and how to apply it um, is one of his most brilliant moves. He's gifted at that. And so a lot of times people think that they're arguing one thing. Um, I've seen my pastor, Pastor Doug Wilson, do this. He um, went to uh, uh, to the co- to the college here in town. Um, I, was, I was trying to think of the title of the um, the Lost Virtue of Sexism was yeah, the title. I, I watched that. I, I watched now, that with my family. Who do you think is going to show up? He got he got all the people who he wanted to preach the gospel to go make signs and put on fancy hats to come sit down and listen to him talk for hours so that he can preach the gospel to them. And what we've lost is the and we're and most people are looking at the title of that like how could you say that you know and but he got him to show up he got them to understand what he meant by it and he got them to listen to the gospel proclaim and man I pray God save somebody from that you know and so we we do need to get better at learning how to use. Um, you know, kind of the things that we know that the enemy will bite on to get them to bite that and then to, to bring them in. But there were some people who I thought some Christians who I would respected, I thought would see that better. Um, but, it, but that was, it was still good because it revealed to me kind of the, the line on where people are at. Okay. Here, I thought you were over here, but you're actually over there. Oh, so you really don't like Tom Ask. Okay. <laughs> like, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of things that were revealed from that. You know, if I had to do that differently again, I think the only thing that I would do again would stress to everybody how crazy this is going to be once this drops. Okay. That's the only thing I would do again. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything I originally did because I work for someone else when, you know, I do what they tell me to do, but I, I did what I was intended to do when we released it, you know? Um, Mm. but I was grateful for, um, what the trailer did. And it's funny because the trailer only push people to the film and people had to see the film. Now they had to see the film. Now you got to see it. You can't, you know, which is what a trailer is supposed to do. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> Go check out the film. Um, I mean, so, when you say it like that, it makes all the sense in the world. I'm, I'm just catching up over here. <laughs> well, I mean, every, every, we all do. I mean, I hate when movies show me an amazing trailer and I go to the movie and then like, Oh, that wasn't in the movie, <laughs> you know, but, uh, the, or, or that wasn't even the thing that you promoted that was going to take place. And the whole point of the trailer was to talk about the, all the ideologies that we see creeping in and one way or another, whether or not we like who's doing it or if we like who's doing it, it's a, there's false ideologies from people who we need to be concerned about. And that was the whole point of the trailer. And I think Tom and all the guys did a great job of revealing that in the film and working through it. You know, some of this is, Part of the thing that I wanted to do for By What Standard was try and get people to come together who disagreed to have a conversation. Mm. But when I started looking at the the panels that were at the Southern Baptist Convention, I didn't see anybody up there who represented a different position on a panel. And I was like, well, that's not diversity. If we want diversity, that's that's mono, you know? Um, and so I, it was just a realization that that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers your question, but no, I mean, that that's good stuff. Yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of that actually, I just really resonate with. So a couple of things on the on the point of diversity. It seems to me as a, as just a nobody in the Southern Baptist Convention that we are all about external diversity uh, in a way that I'm, I'm I'm happy about. Like, I'm, I'm thankful that we're self-consciously not trying to be the Southern white people denomination. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm not trying to pick a fight about that. But we are not all about intellectual diversity if it's not kind of what the 
the powers that be think keep the peace. You know, if somebody's going to get up and release a documentary like the one y'all did, there's not going to be a lot of bandwidth for that on established platforms in the SBC. I think there mm-hmm. ought to be more of it because it's clearly in SBC churches where people are saying, hey, I think there's a problem here. I think I see some negative implications. I think I see some consequences. And they're not crazy people looking to burn everything down. They just want right. to have their question heard, treated with respect, and get a good answer for it. And there's just there's not a lot of room for that in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which is crazy to me because we're a congregational denomination. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? Something that I've learned that I I was, you know, there's a lot of people who are Southern Baptists who are complaining one way or another, but they don't show. I ask them when they show up to the convention and they don't. And it's amazing because it's hard to talk about because Southern Baptists. Have, have been the only denomination to come back from liberalism. And the way that they were able to do it was that it was placed, the power was placed in the individual churches to vote. And if you can get the individual churches, most of them that move conservative to vote, you don't, I think you have a completely different Southern Baptist convention. You have a completely different Southern Baptist convention, but the ones who want to complain aren't the ones who are voting. And so that's a problem. Get involved, do something, make a move. That's why I got a lot of respect for you being there and seeing it. And once you see that though, if you, I don't have any, I don't have a horse in the running on that one at all, but I do know this. So the Southern Baptist convention goes, so does the last dam that will break in America. And that's a problem for me. It should be a problem for all of us. Because of the, the size of the SBC is why you're saying that? It's the last conservative institution in America to stand against, I think, governmental overreach and political influence. The last conservative institution in America. And for all its flaws and all its problems and as whatever you want to say that it's had in the past, it's still that. It's still an institution that you got to get rid of if you want to liberalize this nation. And so if you start seeing the Southern Baptists go and you're able to break that institution down, there is no major Christian denomination that can, right now, churches that are pushing back against COVID-19 overreach are the only hope that we have for American freedom. If churches choose not to push back, rightly so, um, then we are going to see a very different America. And if an institution like the Southern Baptist Convention um, doesn't properly function, operate biblically, and it collapses or we don't have people uh, who are helping it uh, think biblically about what they're doing, think about all the things that it's touching and what comes through. Now, you got liberalism coming in in full effect. At least right now, it's having a fight in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, And it's not a whole lot of people that are doing the fight, but uh, they're being effective. They're being effective. Um, So I think, you know, you don't get conservative uh, politics with the liberal Christian institutions. Yeah, You don't get it at that. So if we don't guard that well, so the church goes, so the rest of the world goes, which if you want to look at the rest of the world right now, it tells you the health of the church isn't that good, at least in America. Um, for your, from your lips to my Southern Baptist friend's ears, um, I know this isn't what I brought you on for, but so much of what you said there I just resonate with. I, I've always worked in small churches, churches that couldn't afford to send me to the annual meetings or the state convention. But yeah, I knew something was – oh, sorry, I didn't mean to step on you there. No, I stepped on you, actually. <laughs> my bad. No, um, no, I'm just saying that that's, that's, that's – I think that that's a problem. we got to figure out how to – get around which smaller churches pay their money and yet they don't have the $5,000 to go out for a convention. And, you know, that's a huge problem. Yeah. So I was the guy who was like working by vocationally, taking off my quote unquote secular job, taking money out of my pocket because I didn't have the vacation days, paying to go Mm. to that meeting and vote and be engaged because 
it matters. It matters in the same way you just said. It matters that we have missionaries on the field and the cooperative program. But I noticed yeah. very quickly that there's a whole bunch of Southern Baptist life that's just about the show. Like we're going to have these big choir presentations and we're going to have these big theatrical things. And I'm like, no, can we just get to the business meeting? Because we need to know what's going on with the doctrine. We need to know what's going on with the money. Uh, but there's just not a lot of room for that. You know, that there's a lack of concern for what I think is essential in Southern Baptist partnership. And I wish that if I could flip a lever, I would flip that like, no, we're here to make sure our doctrine is guarded and the money we're putting to missions and theological education is guarded in light of it. Uh, now, having said that, speaking of stuff that doesn't get traction, you're right. We need young, we need uh, small church pastors in. So we need yeah. things like regional annual meetings where like, I don't have to drive eight hours to get to annual meeting. I can drive an hour. But again, there's just not a lot of traction for that stuff. So pray for us. Pray for us. I don't mind. The, I don't mind the choir and all this stuff. I, I, you know, I again, cross politics. Our titles: fight, laugh, and feast. You know, like we can do it all in one sitting. You know, <laughs> so I, but I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Though I get it. No, I, look, I'm, I'm like in, in that sense, I'm with you. I'm just saying, like, let's have a day for that stuff, and then let's have this <laughs> other day where, like, we're for real going to hash out the important stuff. Then we'll all yeah. go enjoy the choir and the food and all that. You know what I mean? Let's do the fight. And I'm not fight. I don't want it to always be a fight, but let's. Let's yeah. handle the serious stuff. Then we'll go do the celebratory stuff. No, I think you're right. I think that's one of the things that the film revealed is that we had a lot more celebratory stuff. And then when it came time to vote on the real stuff, where did all that time go? So I think, no, you're, you're definitely right with maybe the order of how things need to be. Maybe less feasting and more engagement with the issues so that we can have a great feast when we get done. You know, so there's, there is some, no, you're definitely right. There's some upside downness to that particular narrative. So, Well, if I could go back to something you said previously about like using – I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but using like the controversy that might show up as a hook to get people to pay attention. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I met Doug Wilson uh, through the classical school movement, but I really started paying attention to, to what was going on in Moscow when they put out a satirical video about the uh, Love Wins Rob Bell book. I don't know if you ever saw that thing, but Rob Bell had released a video saying like, he was kind of scoffing at the idea that a Christian could say Gandhi was in hell. And he was walking through this snowy street and some people in Moscow released a video that was lampooning his video. And I remember being so captivated by like Christians who had a sense of humor, but aimed it at good stuff doctrinally. Right. And man, you say we need more of that in church. I, it, again, if I could like flip the switch, the Lord is sovereign and knows what we need. But some yeah. more creative people who had doctrine deep down in their bones, but who were willing to be uh, humorously punchy with it. That's what yeah. I would give the church. Well, and we like stuff like that. I mean, if we think that it's only pagans watch, watching Jimmy Kimball, then we're wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we like that. We like satire. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we were watching Key and Peele. You know, we were everybody. We know we know the joke. You know, we know the line, so it's, we're all in that. So we like that kind of stuff. The problem is, is that we don't know that that kind of things are in our Bibles. And so we're somebody yeah, well said, sir. Like, like we forgot Isaiah made fun of idolaters, you know? Right, right. And, um, and, and so we just feel like that Christians can't have that kind of um, poke and engagement. And actually, it's, it's not... One of the things Todd Friel was really good at, Todd Friel was a stand-up comedian. And so him to come back with a quick clap back and witness encounters and to see the inconsistency in somebody and how he would do that was funny. He was good at that. You know, he, you know, he writes jokes. He's touring with Ellen and stuff. Like he knows, you know, he was, <clears throat> we, but I even watched him get pushback from Christians because well, that seems snarky. 
you know, Christians just have a hard time being able to use satire because I don't think that we have a gauge on when's enough, when's not enough. You know, we just, we feel like any sort of satire would be naturally sinful. We don't have a gauge on that. So, um, yeah, I've, I've learned a lot from watching a lot of people here in, in my town and my church and brothers around me. Um, can impress is wonderful at using satire. I think we take things too personal. I think we really take things way too personal. And so it's hard for us to be like, you know, it'd be funny, right? We'd be like, you know, I'm going to know how I'm going to get back at them. Mm. And, <laughs> you know, um, and I think satire really has the ability to say, you know, uh, and the right kind of satirical pro- approach would be like, how can I like show them just how inconsistent this is to win them over? Right. Like this is, and uh, somebody like Rob Bell, just to poke it, like there's, there's no real Christian who believes this, is there? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, that's something else. Uh, Uncle Gary, I call him Uncle Gary, but Gary DeMar helped me understand why people have such a problem applying biblical law to the world that we're in now. And he, and he basically said, because we don't practice it. We don't practice it. And if we practice God's law, if we understood it, we were in the word, we understood how it operates, how we're supposed to engage people um, and applied it to situations Said, well, why doesn't, okay, this is a little weird. The Bible doesn't say not to do this, but we know it's wrong. How do we justify it? Um, how do we talk against it? You know, um, or speak against it biblically because we don't apply God's word and we're not exercising it. We have no idea then how to use it. And so the more that we begin to practice with satire, the more we begin to say, okay, maybe that was too far. The more we get to practice with the, what we see in scripture, say, why did he use this point to argue against them? And why was that fun? Or why was it such a good rhetorical approach? You know, um, the more that we begin to do those kind of things, the more we get to understand how to properly use it. So it might come out that we not don't use it right the first time. We might get it wrong. We might, okay, maybe that was a little too over the top. Let me pull it back. But we to not use it because that could be the case is wrong also. We just got to get better at using all the tools that God has given us to use. And he, since he shows us how to use them. Yeah, sort of a superficial niceness can choke us out and keep us from doing some good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, you've been so kind with your time. There's, there's a couple of things I wanted to get to. I hope. Yeah, let's do it. Can. One, how do you get from Minnesota to Moscow? And then you got to tell me what all what are you doing with Fight Laugh Feast? Because if if I can do anything to send more people to listen to you, if I can get more people to your conference down the road later, I want to do that. So first up, how you get from how do you get from many Minnesota to Moscow? So by way of Georgia and then through California. So oh I'm in, I'm in Georgia. I want to start doing more movie stuff with Wretched. I want a Wretched. <laughs> funny conversation. Facebook's coming out. I'm like, guys, we need to put Gia B on Facebook. This is going to be hot. We need to do it. You know, um, there wasn't understanding what Facebook was going to be wasn't there. And nor was the idea of filmmaking and movies. They have a very dis- a distinct approach. And I was kind of thinking outside of the box that wasn't really modeled for them. And so I started to work on with American Vision on how to answer the fool. And that's Uncle pre- Gary, right? American Vision. Yeah. American yeah. Vision. Uncle Gary, yeah. And um, how to answer the fool with Cy Tim Bruggenkate and start realizing, OK, I want to be in this world. I did that for a year with those guys. And Darren calls me to come work in California with him on Saving Christmas, Kirk Cameron's film. Mm-hmm. And so we went from Saving Christmas to another film uh, called um, Kill the Dragon, Get the Girl that we were going to be doing in Idaho. So I got out to California. Darren's like, I'm leaving this summer going to Idaho. And so he sends me to Idaho um, three months after I get to California. So Minnesota, Georgia, California, Idaho. <laughs> All right. So you show up to work on Kill the Dragon, Get the Girl, which is a great kind of summary of the motif of the Bible's whole narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but you stayed. So why'd you stay in Moscow then? Let me let me alter the question. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, I got to Moscow and I saw something that I, I was, I saw the deficiencies in some of my own theological, practical theological um, areas in my life. Uh, and it really with manhood. Okay. It was manhood and my family. We were, you, we were biblically sound, biblically, theologically accurate. And then sometimes seeing it worked out was really hard. Didn't really see it worked out. Didn't really see, was teaching the standard, knew the standard, falling in love with the standard was a different thing. And seeing a, such a large group of people falling in love with God's standard and strong, good, faithful fathers for two generations, three generations. I got jealous. I was jealous for what I saw. And I realized that I, there wasn't going to be anywhere else that I was going to go that was going to, that I thought anyway, that I had been from Minneapolis to Idaho where I could see such a large community of biblical men, um, you know, leading in their families, you know, uh, faithfully and, and seeing that worked out. And I was like, I need to be here. I need to be here. And so, um, you know, we weren't planning. It was tough. We weren't planning on being here. There wasn't any more work after that, that film. And so I had to figure out how to stay in Moscow, um, which is a weird thing in itself. The industry here is weird, but uh, it was, for whatever reason, I just felt like it was worth our family staying here. And it's been just a sweet six years, sweet six years. Uh, God's been really kind to us. And a lot of those things, developing those skills, the education from, I, I, I would never thought that my kid's education would be something that I would move to another state for. And that's not why I moved here, but moving here, it ended up being something that was super valuable that I wouldn't trade. And so for right now, I just know, and I knew that moment that I was still supposed to be here after that contract ended. Um, and it, the, I, I wanted to be like the man that I saw around me. And it's so funny because there's, there's a lot of solid biblical men that just are doing their thing that nobody thinks is special. And I was like, I'm just watching them like, that's a good dad right there, boy. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and there's just a lot of that. It's like keeping up with the Joneses and sanctification, you know? Um, oh, yeah. uh, and I was like, okay, I like that. I like that. So that's what kept me here. Oh, I get that. I, I grew up around a lot. Of, like I'm from a farm family. I, I grew up a, a, around some really masculine guys, but there wasn't a lot of energy invested in like being a great dad, at least not that I had access to. Right. And uh, when I would go to the ACCS conference, I hear Matt Whitling talk about raising his boys. Uh, I mean, it will get you fired up, man. Like you will get motivated. Matt Whitling's one of those guys where it's like when you, he's a stud, you know, and you, um, and you see him and you're like, you know, okay. When I grew up, I want to be like Matt Whitling, you know, <laughs> he's one of those guys. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that, but he's one of those guys that's like that, you know, <laughs> and, uh-huh. and, and and there's a lot of guys like that. Like I said, who you would just look at and not think it was, it's really weird too, man. There's this, there's this tenderness, there's this kindness and this patience that I found exists along with this masculine bruteness too. It's these two worlds together where, uh, gentle and kind with the kid and yet very manly, masculine hunters, you know, fighters, killers, you know what I'm saying? Like just these guys who can get it in. At the same time, know when to be gracious, know when to be kind, no um, protective, you know, um, loving and gentle. It's just amazing watching that them hold those two worlds, all those worlds together, not just one aspect of it, but all those worlds together. And it's the biggest thing above all is watching men take blows for other people that they're protecting and don't, don't say anything. That's been something I've watched number of men in small situations and large situations that are probably righteous in more than one way, 
and are taking blows for other people and refuse to say anything about it and just take those blows and keep moving. And that, that to me, I don't live in that world. I, I, I take a blow, you getting blow back, you know, <laughs> it's not, um, but I've seen that and it's really made me think about Christ as far as how he's done that for us in the same way, you know? And I was like, wow, that's, um, I've seen a lot of Christ modeling being here and it's, it's been a blessing. That sounds like a good reason to pick a place to live with your family, man. Yeah. All right. So you figured out how to make some money in Moscow, though, because, like I said, you're an entrepreneur and the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network has grown out of your work uh, with some friends, neighbors, church members there in Moscow, right? Yeah. That, yeah. So, yeah. So Gabe decided to start CrossPolitik. From starting CrossPolitik, we realized that we didn't want Christians need more than one show. We need a lot of stuff. We need sports. We need music. We need entertainment. We our, our you know, our father owns all this and we need to model for the world, disciple the world and how to use these things properly. Um, and so uh, we've left all this to seculars for too long. And this would probably be a good time to plug in the bullpen with Mark Dewey, our first sports podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. So cross politics starts the network. After we started growing, it was like, guys, how do we bring other people into this so that we can start producing content that is not cross politics, that has its own unique flavor and touch for an, our audience so that we can model what it is that we believe about all these things need being in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So that's where Fight, Laugh, Feast came from. So that's where... Um, well, you know, God's blessings upon you. And it's clear that God is blessing y'all. Um, one of the things I appreciate about your cross politic podcast, uh, the description says mixes the taboo, the taboo, I can't speak, taboo formula of faith, culture, and politics. Uh, you guys were the only ones in the game I knew trying to do that and saying Christ has something to say about this. Like we, we can, we can bring the Lord's word to bear on that. And so it makes sense to me that it grew. Um, what you do with the network though, is really fascinating to me. You said something earlier about people need developmental systems to get ready to have something to say to the world. And then maybe mm-hmm. some of the alternative media has, has um, caught, you know, that's been a cost. It's been cast aside. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and you tell me if I'm out of step with what y'all are doing. I also see the exact need you, you have presented that like you mentioned Facebook was going to be a big thing. Facebook is very, very interesting in thought control. Yeah. Um, Amazon, Google, you just name it. They're going to let allowable opinion and nothing else from a warped perspective on their platform. I see right. you guys over here building this alternative network to say, you know what, we're going to get our message out on our own terms and we're right. going to, we're going to put a bullhorn behind good stuff. Um, mm. I don't, I don't guess you see those as inconsistent with each other. I don't either, but I am curious how you think through, like we're going to build something different, uh, but we're going to help people grow into it too. Yeah, you know, I think first of all, I, I I'm probably maybe think a little different about how Facebook and and YouTube. I think they're supposed to police their content. I don't think I think that's inescapable. It's just that what they choose to police and what they don't choose to police is so arbitrary. Oh, that's well said. Yeah, and so you know we have a standard too on the network of things that we want on there and things that we don't want on there. And when but we but our you know we just had those things defined differently. So we're very ecumenical. So we can have Baptists and people who are charismatic and other folks, but there's a certain worldview that we all are trying to commit to, which is Jesus Christ is Lord of the world. And so like, um, you know, Matt Williams, who does our business podcast, How to Build a Tent, um, he shares that worldview, even though his theological principles are different than ours. We start talking about speaking in tongues and other things. He might be a little open to that more than we are, you know, um, and yet we want his 
And yet when he talks on his podcast about business and how it works and who's Lord of it and how we do it, you know, we're right in alignment there. And we want to be able to have those conversations about what we do disagree on publicly without necessarily dividing us. And we got some Baptists that are on the network and, um, and, you know, some wild fire starters like Marcus Pittman get things done. And then we got a ivory tower group in the theology podcast, you know, um, and, uh, a very manly show inside of our, um, inside of our network as well. And so I, you know, again, um, like the the patriarchy podcast. So I, there's nothing wrong with the policing of it. And yeah, so what we're trying to do with the network is to give those different to build a, a system or a platform or even with Matt Dewey to say, guys, this is a model for how Christians need to be thinking about the whole world. This is how we need to be thinking about the whole world. And so, yeah, I, um, I think that answered your question. I hope I answered your question there. Yeah, you did. Uh, you, you answered better than my question set you up to. All right. So last two points. One, it seems to me like it's right there up front that your eschatology is driving so much of your work that you guys see. That's the, I'm sorry. That's offensive. Oh, well, forgive me. Go ahead. I'll let you finish. I'll I'll let you finish. I'll tell you why it's offensive, but go ahead. You guys make me want to be post-millennial. I'm not. (laughs) But you make me want to be. And I don't know. I feel like you're like, no, no, Jesus is king. He's going to rule the world visibly. Let's just go ahead and act like that's what's going on. Uh, But I have given offense. So how did I offend and what can I do to make amends? Um, And Toby and Gabe might not take offense at all. Um, First of correction, then I'll go into this. First correction is he's not going to be ruling the world. He already is. Amen, brother. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well noted. <laughs> See, well you're post mill already. You're post mill already. Um, and um, I think of it as a gospel proclamation um, and not necessarily, I don't, um, when I talk to people about post-millennialism, I take a little bit of a different approach. I take a more of a well, try and use the gospel to get them there because I think if they can see that they, they won't even think about post-millennialism at the end of the day. Um, because most people are trying to say, when they think of hear our position, they think, Oh, you think the world is getting better. You know, how, mm. how could you think that? And so I don't want to, there's a, another form of rhetoric I want to use. I want to say that it's a gospel position. It's a, it's a very much a believing of the gospel that a, if a person is transformed in their heart, they automatically change the world around them. And this goes into the three spheres of, of government, starting with the self-government. Once God transforms a man in his heart, the woman who is married to him is going to have a very different person she interacts with. The children they produce are going to have very different standards that they'll follow. The work that he does interacts and engages ethics and culture and finance in such a way as to comport with what God says about those things so that he starts bringing like, um, like Joseph, um, blessing to whoever and whatever he touches because of his biblical ethics that he brings to the situation. So, uh, and that's all based on a transformed heart. (laughs) And so um, we expect that a, a that a person that is regenerated, we expect them to act differently about everything. Mm -hmm. Are you stealing? Well, don't steal anymore, brother. Go work with your hands. Right. Um, Are you giving into adultery? Repent, get married, right? Um, we are laying out a pattern of lifestyle that the Bible says upon that covenant be blessed to a thousand generations. And I believe that. And we all believe that. We all believe that the gospel is going to accomplish the work that it's supposed to do in a changed man's heart. And all I want to say is help. What we're trying to do is help people understand how that changed man operates. So part of the command for us is to go make this. Oh, first, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Go make disciples, but it doesn't stop there. Baptize and teach. And I think far too often 
um, everything I've commanded you, right? So false often we are happy with the making of a disciple and happy with the baptism and then leave off full orb teaching. And if we bring into this full orb teaching, you can't help but into the place eschatologically that has impact, right? You can't help but do that. I mean, I've, and that's just, we, I mean, we, we, I think we should have more shock than we do about a man's children not following after him Mm. (laughs) Mm. Um, because that's telling us that there's a breakdown somewhere between the God that he serves and discipling his children to love and serve that same God. And so when we see that breakdown happening, there's, there's a disconnect there and we should have way more pause and says, time out. How is this? It should be the other way around where it's like, what you mean? They they didn't turn out to be Christians, even for Baptists. What you mean they're not Christians? What do you mean? Right. How is that possible? We should be. But I think our default position is like, wow, look, that's just how it goes. But there is a lack of faithfulness to the the commands of God in in us that allow that to be the standard. And part of the reason I would say that is because just look at how we feel about education. Mm. Look at where we send our kids to be educated at a place that fears the Lord, fears his knowledge or where two plus two could be nine because Tommy could be Rachel, you know, (laughs) And so um, that's so that's that's my only I was I was kind of just joking with you. I said, like, you know, it's offensive. I just mean that it's like I want to make sure that when I talk about it, I don't usually talk about our eschatological position, even though it's definitely on the front of it. But it's really anchored into the the belief in that the gospel accomplishes what it's set out to do in the heart of the believer. And that has repercussions to it. And it also has curses that come with it. Right. (laughs) Right. And so those people who choose to taste the goodness, you know, um, and then to walk away from this, like that, that, that bro, it's better that you never even had tasted how good this was, you know. But um, but if that's true, then so is the other side of this, which is for those who actually do taste and believe and commit and follow the process of raising in, in their children, the fear and admonition of the Lord and follow the process of ethics at work and uh, how we manage our economy because of how we manage our home. I mean, that has implications. And so I just usually want to attach it to, does the gospel have implications for how we live in this world? And does it then make the world ultimately look at the, the nation that's uh, laws that are from God and fear God and say, wow, that's amazing. The stories that we have in the Bible about Joseph and, and, um, Israel was blessed when they feared the Lord. And when they didn't follow his commands, Israel was a blasphemous nation. And so the people of God are blessed and they cause others to fear the Lord when they fear the Lord. And when they're inconsistent with what they say, they become blasphemous and cause Gentiles to blaspheme. So I, I try and make it, I, I think your eschatology is extremely attached to the, the, the gospel in one sense, right? Like the gospel has an outworking that has a format that's going to accomplish its goal. And so I really want to place most of my anchoring my position and what we do in gospel ministry, even though I think our eschatology flies probably f- forefront in what people see, unless they don't hear what I just said most of the time, they hear out they're post mill. Well, but this is what we mean, right? Sure, sure. It sounds to me like you're saying, this is how I give myself to the great commission and then watch what the Lord does through it, right? Well, and it's believing that the Great Commission is actually going to accomplish that thing, too. Right. So, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. It's giving ourselves to the Great Commission and then being radical enough to say, when I step out on this, this is going to be I'm, I'm going to walk on water. Right. <laughs> like that's that's um, that's the consistency that I want to have with it. You know, not, so I expect that if I could see my generation 
you know, three generations or four generations from now that my kids are doing radical things for the name of Christ in the world that is changing it um, and bringing all things into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, that's what I'm and and the, I'm hoping that that's the case. I believe that's the case as I submit to the Lord and then practice to do what he told me to do and rearing my children. I believe that. I believe to see that. You know, I don't I, I expect to see that. I'm not like what, what's going to happen four generations down. Well, how faithful am I going to be to the Lord now? Right. And I believe that um, covenant obedience over time breeds success. And I think being covenant breakers over time brings judgment. So, you know, I, I just want to attach those two things to um, maybe how, how we view um, or how I view it. Anyway, I can't speak for Toby again, but that's how my, my, my perspective of, you know, our, our how we move the show, how we think about cross politics, how we think about fight, laugh, feast, you know, um, all right. Well, I'm chastened over here for uh, leaping too quickly to eschatology. I, I appreciate the correction. No, I, no, it's not really correction. I was just playing with you. Actually, I just thought I'd take the time to, to throw that in there. Just toss oh, that one in. Uh, you know, <laughs> people listening to this can't see it. I, I, that, that even for Baptist comment a minute ago, that landed. That landed. I just want you to know I, I, I caught that one. <laughs> which one? The, which one? The ba- you, oh, you're even talking for- about all these blessings that yeah. come to come to families. Like, you know, even for Baptists. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, That's cool. Uh, I know. I know. My bad. I just had to throw that in there. Hey, you are coming down to the the mothership though of the Southern Baptist world in October, bringing the uh, Fight Laugh Feast conference down here. So tell us yeah. about uh-huh. that conference and help everybody understand why they need to get there. Well, first, because we're going to be singing a whole bunch of psalms. Mm. Um, I can't. If I can, I mean, you can sing psalms anywhere, but. Boy, it's really fun to sing them with us. Uh, <laughs> but I, no, but seriously, I, I can't, I, as much as I, as strong as I feel about that we shouldn't divide over the issue of baptism, I probably feel more strongly about that we should be singing psalms in worship. Okay, okay. Um, I think we've lost, I think we've lost our ability to fight well because God's word is not hidden in our hearts. Um, and part of the way that that happens is through singing psalms. That's how, that's how we saturate his word. And so we know this with music. If I start humming a song right now, you, it will take you to a location. It will take you to an era when you learned it and it will take you to the data that it's trying to communicate. And we have a lot of great songs in Christendom and the very few of them bring us to biblical um, theology that is it's clear scripture. And I think we need a lot more of that. I think that we need to be singing our songs. And so one of the things I'm excited about when we were on our crew, when we were on our tour, the East coast tour, there was a Sunday that um, we didn't get any Psalms and we went and fellowship with the family. And I realized that this, you know, I've been, it's so easy me for me here to take for, we sing Psalms every Sunday. And so it's easy to take that for granted and be like, man, where's the cool music at? Where's the guitars and stuff? And like, I, I, I'm a musician too. So, um, you know, I want some Psalms in my, my genre that I like, you know, and I noticed that not getting the Psalms for that week, I realized that there was a difference in, you know, my expectation of worship. I was like, okay, the songs weren't bad. They were, some were good, but there's just nothing like eating on God's word while you're singing. And I'm hoping that the, what the conference will do will ignite in our brothers and sisters a huge passion for God's word to be sung in such a way that when we were driving down the road, we started singing Psalm, I believe, 110. And I remember all four of us in the car were chanting that Psalm so hard that it was almost like rocking the, the van. And my chest was just beating because it was, and it was just Jehovah comes down from Zion, you know, mm-hmm. my Lord sit down on my right hand. I mean, and then 
man singing like that, just rumbling, um, the vehicle and the windows in it. And I was like, Oh wow, this, this, this is this, there's something to this. And I, I just kind of want people to get a taste of that. And I hope they walk away saying, okay, you know what? We're going to sing Psalms. We're going to sing God's word. Um, uh, Ray Rhodes, he wrote the book, um, Susie Spurgeon. I don't know if you know, that, but he wrote that book and he said, uh, we pray the scriptures, we preach the scriptures, we sing the scriptures. And I think a lot of people have some of those too. And they missed the third one. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that that lights a fire, but not just that we have, um, you know, uh, the, the people, the guys that are coming there to the conference, um, you know, we, I, I can't even go through all the names. Some of them I, I can't even say yet, but I just want to say that the, we've been really thoughtful about helping people um, really manage this first part of government, self-government. Um, and the men who are coming to speak at the conference, um, I don't think you're going to walk away from there feeling like you do at other conferences when you, when you leave. And so partially because of the speakers, but the engagement that we want to have, we really do want it to feel like a family get together, family got together at a campfire with some wine, some beer, and we sing to the glory of God, singing God's scriptures, hearing God's scriptures preach, and then initiating how do we start implementing this in a real way from where, whatever place we're at in real life, God's word. And so, you know, there's some political things that we're trying to help us think about how we engage politically, uh, but we're really focusing on, you know, getting that first set of government, self-government anchored in the right place thinking biblically about what you have in your hand, where you are. I talk about, um, I won't be speaking, but one of the things that I talk about sometimes when it comes to um, being successful is that it's not really what you don't have. When God came to Moses, he asked him what was in his hand. You know, (laughs) well, this old thing, yeah, yeah, that old thing. And I think a lot of times we have things in our hand and we're expecting looking somewhere else to see what is it I'm going to do to, um, to be faithful to God. And I, I don't think we power and just being a father and being a husband and just being a faithful employee and just being somebody who says we won't bow to the sound of the trumpet and to the sound of the lyre. Just if we can just implement those four things, if you can walk away from the conference and know and and and, and have those, those that anchor, that self-government anchored in God's word, the alignment for everything else is just going to fall into place. And so um I'm trying. I'm trying to be careful not to give away who all the speakers are going to be there. But some of that's going to be on the website soon. But uh, but Doug Wilson's going to be there. Um, um, trying to get somebody. How uh, I, I won't spoil it. I think uh, Glenn Sunshine has agreed to to do a talk there as well. Toby's going to be there. Um, Toby has is. If you have not listened to Toby's talk at Apologia uh, for their uh, Reform Con this past year. You are missing it. Okay. You are, uh, I, that sermon, I was crying in my seat at that sermon. Um, it, it was sometimes you listen to a sermon and you're like, um, you're, you start amen in the sermon because he preaching on other people. <laughs> and then the sermon gets so good where he start preaching on you. You were like, oh, Lord, help me. <laughs> I had one of those moments where it was like, you know, I see so much of that. We can easily preach on everybody else and then, but we don't. That sermon hits home, man. We need to first say, Lord, help me to apply this word to my own heart, to my own life and forgive me for my own sin um, so that I can be faithful and pull out and help other brothers who have a problem, maybe even worse than mine, but or have the same problem. But help me to be faithful first and then that self-government aspect of it. So 
I'm talking too much. No, you're not talking too much. I'm eating it up. Uh, October 1st through 3rd, right? In Nashville, Tennessee, we've got, uh, it looks, I'm on the website right now. So it looks like early bird registration is open. 142 days till the conference kicks off. There we go. Who's all on there yet? Have they, I'm trying to see who I can and can't say is coming. Well, I noticed there's a good Baptist on there named Rod Martin. And there's another fellow on there with a last name Spurgeon. So I feel like we're represented. Uh, yeah. Keynote speakers, Toby Sumter, Doug Wilson, Rod Martin, George Grant, another uh, Nashville product I'm a fan of, Glenn Sunshine. And then there's a whole host of special event speakers and network <laughs> show hosts. I, yeah, that can't. There's some guys. There's some. Uh, look, if we if this goes through well, and we'll find out pretty soon, there's some guys that are coming. Going to be like. There's a there's a top, oh I, I'm, I'll, I'll save it just keep up to the website just sign up now so you can figure out you know if you can make it or not but uh it's it's we're gonna have a good time the whole goal again one of the best part about conferences if you go to you you know you went to G three right you know as, as much as I appreciate the speakers that are there and the the work that they do to preach us the word of God there is something amazing about the fellowship that happens in the hall with other like minded Christian and believers that um, conferences just by happenstance produce, right? Mm -hmm. We want to take that and say, what if that, that fellowship with the brethren um, was cultivated into the conference? And that's, that's a huge part of what we want to try and do with this conference. Well, that sounds excellent. Um, it's flfnetwork.com, Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. So flfnetwork.com forward slash coming soon. Uh, listener, that will get you to early bird registration. There's a big blue button. You click it and get signed up to go do that. Nashville giving y'all any sweat about Corona stuff? I don't know how y'all see Nashville, but we kind of see them as our liberal big brother, big sister where I'm at, you know. Oh, really? No, they haven't really given us a... No, they haven't given us any any sweat about it at all. Should we be concerned about that? <laughs> well, I mean, everything's opening up. People are starting to realize, like, we gotta we gotta open up. But I don't know. I just sometimes the stuff that rolls out of Nashville makes me lift an eyebrow. You know, we'll just tell everybody to wear a mask, and then we can take them off once we get inside. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to keep them there just in case the sheriff shows up or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard there might be singing. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I can't even with that. Dude, open up, they're not allowed to sing. What is going on? If you accept that, shame on you. You know, just what are you thinking? So, yeah, man, I do know, but from what we can tell, we've been keeping our ear to the ground. Everything is great so far. We haven't even been. The venue is large enough, too, that if we needed to self distance, we could really do it really easily. Um, but again, I don't know why. Christians and self-distancing don't work. Christians come to church, they come to fellowship with each other, and they'll self-distance. And then when church is over, they be like, "Bro, what's up? Are you gonna see you? Love you? How you doing? Ah! Okay, take some of the sanitizer. All right, God bless you. All right, I'll see you next week. You know, we we're not gonna do that for too long. There's something in us to be like, I love my brother. You know, and there's others that would be like, okay, we want to protect them, so we won't. But I think for the most part, for those of us who want to be out and want to get out and be with each other. You're not going to stop us from singing. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, hey, thanks again for so much time here. I I know you're in a bunch of different places. For our listeners who want to follow you, I know you're on Twitter. Is the easiest way to connect with what you're doing on the flfnetwork.com website? Yeah, absolutely. For for all things cross politic, for all things, um, again, the FLF Network is the best place. So flfnetwork.com, FLF, is it FLFnetwork.com. Yeah, that's I will put a link, listener, in the show notes to that. I'll try to also get a link to that uh, sermon that Toby uh, that he referenced from Toby from RefCon this year too. Must listen, and if he's going to bring half of that to the Fight Laugh Feast conference, then you're in for a treat. <laughs> That's all I got to say. 
All right. Well, hey, Chuck Knox, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for your work. No, thanks pleasure. for spending time oh, with us, you. man. Let me, uh, when y'all get into middle Tennessee sometime, let, let me buy one of your meals while you're out and about in Nashville. I'll, I'll find you something good to eat and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pay for it. Hey, I'm, I won't be mad at that at all. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks for, again, thanks for your time. Have a good evening. Uh, God bless you and all that you're doing. As a family man, uh, all the hats we talked about, we appreciate you and keep up the good work, man. Praise God, brother. Thanks for having me on. See, told you, wasn't that great? Fascinating guy has done so much. Obviously, the Lord's blessing him and using him. Uh, that was as good as I expected going in, and it was fun to see it play out just uh, just as well as I thought it would. The only thing we didn't get to in that lengthy run was how to get him back on the side of the Credo Baptist, but maybe next time. Maybe next time with Chocolate Knox. Uh, until then, though, guys, this is Jeff Wright for Jared Moore, uh, representing the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. Wanted to say thank you for listening. As always, if you want to connect with us, we're at PCCD pod on virtually every social media platform. We'd love to connect with you. And we've got more good stuff coming down the pike for you from our family of podcasts. So stay tuned for that. Until then, though, again, I am Jeff Wright on the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast, reminding you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God, because you are. Talk to you next time.